The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In this morning's passage in Matthew 22, Jesus answers very significant questions that touch on very big topics. How should Christians relate to government? What will the family look like in heaven? How should we live on earth? Now you should know that all of the questions that Jesus is being asked, he's being asked from evil motive, from insincere motive. They're asking them with evil intent, and yet he gives very good and needed answers. And so the title for today's sermon is Good Answers to Evil Questions. Now, to help us follow along, I think the sermon should follow the text, of course, and I think the text breaks down like this. I think part one is Jesus gives three good answers to three evil questions. But then part two, Jesus asks one question, and they have no answer. Now, to help you follow, the first part will take most of the sermon. (laughs) The last part will be short. So first, three good answers to three evil questions, and at the end of each answer that Jesus gives, we'll bring out applications that we need for how we live. Now, let's remember the setting so we understand why they're asking evil intended questions. Why why would they have insincere motive? It's been a couple weeks because we had a wonderful guest preacher last Sunday, but let me remind you where we are in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the Passion Week. On Sunday of this week, the text that we're in, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey on purpose to show that he's the fulfillment of Zechariah's promised Messiah. Then he cleans the temple because they were keeping out Gentiles from worship. So he allows Gentiles to come back in. And then the third thing he does, which seems like the strangest, is he curses a fig tree. But the reason he does is because from a distance, it looks like it would have health and have fruit. But upon closer inspection, you see that it betrays that it has no life. And that serves as an illustration of Jerusalem and those in it. Upon closer inspection, that religiosity does not have spiritual life. Now the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the scribes, they get very angry with Jesus and they say, on what authority do you do these things? In other words, who do you think you are? And the answer, if you remember two weeks ago, Jesus gives them three parables. The first parable is about two sons. The one son says he's going to obey, but he never does. The point is some people give lip service to God, but they never give their life to God. In the next parable, there's a farmer who plants a vineyard, but then there are wicked tenants who refuse his authority and murder his son, which shows us a rebellious heart that humans have. And in the third parable, we read about the parable of the wedding feast, and the father invites and invites and invites, but the people refuse. See, at this point in history, the Jewish religious leaders are so mad at Jesus because he has come to the temple, which was sort of their seat of authority. So now the questions they give him at that location on Tuesday of the Passion Week are meant to undercut him. So here's the first question. Look in verse 15, please, of Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 15, the Pharisees will ask about taxation. Verse 15, Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Do you see? They're not asking because they really want to (laughs) know. They're asking to try to trap him. It's, It's The Greek word's only used here in the New Testament. It means to set a snare or a trap. And then verse 16, 
Then they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, wait, so why Pharisees and Herodians? Here's why. As the name Herodians, you might think Herod. These are people loyal to Herod and through government taxation. So the Pharisees are against Roman taxation. The Herodians are for it. And so the two of them come together with a common enemy. They're both against Jesus. Let's continue verse 16. They say, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you're not swayed by appearances. Did you know that flattery is a sin? <laughs> the Bible says in Psalm 5 verse 9, there's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Psalm 12.2, they speak falsehood to one another with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. Romans 16, verse 18, such men are slaves not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. With flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspected. To say something kind to someone for the purpose of manipulating them is the sin of flattering. That's what they're doing here. You know what's funny, though? Even their flattery, which they're laying on thick, isn't nearly lofty enough. What do they call him? Teacher. But he's not merely a teacher. He's God the Son in flesh. How do they describe him? They say, we know you are true. No, Jesus is not true as if there was an external standard to which he had to conform. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Even in their attempts to butter it on, they actually don't hit the mark of how great God is. They say, you do not care about anyone's opinion. You're not swayed by appearances. It's a hard Greek phrase to translate. The Greek actually is, you don't look at people's faces. Because though man looks on the outside, where does God look? On the heart. Even their flattery could never ascend to heights of true worship. Know this this morning, that fake approaches that give lip service or words about God could never rise to the heights of someone who truly knows and loves God. Now we finally get to their question, verse 17. Tell us then, and the word then means now that we've flattered you, answer our question. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And then notice the end, or not. See, they're trying to back him into a corner of a yes or no answer. You have to give yes or no right now. Now, like Admiral Akbar yelling in the background, it's a trap. <laughs> this is clearly a heads I win, tells you lose question. If Jesus says, yes, pay taxes, then the Pharisees are going to work up the crowd and say, see, he wants us to pay these pagans. Kill them. And if he says, don't pay taxes, then the Herodians are going to run to the Romans and say, he's an insurrectionist. He's disobeying the government. He's in a lose-lose situation. Verse 18, Jesus, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Now, I have to tell you, that description reminded me of nearly every news network and social media post I've seen in my lifetime. <laughs> it's not a question for sincere learning. It's an effort to destroy someone else to exalt yourself. So Jesus says, why do you put me to the test, hypocrites? You don't really want to know the answer. Verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Let me just point out, they brought him a denarius because he didn't have one. Verse 20, Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? 
This morning, if I had a Roman coin that I could pass around from the first century on the coin, you would see Tiberius. And above his name, you would see Devis et Pontifex Maximus, which in English would mean God and High Priest. So the Roman coins actually called for pagan worship of the Roman emperor with God-defined values. And that's what makes Jesus' answer particularly striking. So look in verse 21. Whose inscription is this? They said, well, of course, Caesar's. But then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. This is a remarkable statement about a pagan coin that talks about a pagan Caesar as deity. Jesus is essentially saying, give the Roman government what is theirs by divine allowance, but give God what is God's by divine prerogative as sovereign Lord. So give the Roman government the purview that God has entrusted them with, but give God what is ultimately his, and everything is ultimately his. This week I was working through this, and, well, let me show you verse 22. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Do you think they let it go? Do you know what they did later? Luke 23, verse 2. They began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. Is that what he did? No, <laughs> they accused him of the exact opposite. Let this be a lesson to all of us. If you think you can appease wicked people with righteous actions, you can't. Wicked peach people who have skin-deep religiosity don't play by righteous ethics. <laughs> So there is no appeasing them. Jesus did right, and yet they did wrong, no matter what he did. But verse 21 has so much truth in it. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. So this week I wrote several implications of what this one verse means, but then I read Pastor Kevin DeYoung, who I thought wrote it even better than I did. So these next six statements, if you downloaded the notes this morning, or if you write very quickly... (laughs) These next six statements are his, and then I'll fill in some thoughts behind them. What does this verse mean? After each answer, we want to apply what it means for us. So after this first answer, what does it mean for us? First, it means this. Be good citizens, even if you think the government is bad. Now, even if you think the American government is bad, which in many ways it is, we should understand that it is not nearly as bad as the pagan government that has a coin that says that Tiberius is God and high priest. Our currency says, in God we trust. And yet Jesus told them to give that currency to the earthly, evil, wicked ruler that God had ordained for them to have. So be a good citizen, even if you think the government is bad. Secondly, it means allegiance to God and allegiance to your country are not inherently incompatible. Sometimes Christians talk like you should have no loyalty for your country as if loving your country is necessarily a bad thing. But Jesus here says that we can give something to God and render something to Caesar, meaning that it isn't necessarily bad to have joy in our place of location. Let me quote Kevin DeYoung here. He writes, In general, it's possible to be a good Christian and a good American or Canadian or Kenyan or wherever you live. Patriotism, then, is not necessarily bad. Singing your national anthem and getting choked up is not bad. 
Allegiance to God and allegiance to your country are not inherently incompatible. Here's a third thing it means. It is acceptable that there be some measure of separation between church and state. If there's something we give to Caesar and something else that we give to God, and they don't always overlap, then it means it's acceptable that there's some separation between church and state. They overlap much, but they are two distinct circles. This does not mean Christ is not Lord of all, because he is, but it means he does rule differently in those different spheres. It also reminds us that government is ultimately accountable to God, but God does work things out differently in the governance sphere. Number four, it means that God's people are not tied to any one nation. Notice Jesus' answer proves that following Christ is not a matter of whether or not you're a Roman or a Jew. Following Christ has nothing to do with your human country or your ethnic identity. I'll say it this way. Christianity is a matter of who your king is, not where you pay your taxes. (laughs) So here's an important point. Sometimes Christians are accused of today. Sometimes people today say, oh, Christianity, that's a Western white American religion, which, by the way, is false, even just geographically. Did you know that there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than there are in England? Did you know there are more Presbyterians in South Korea today than there are in the United States? So that's false, actually, factually. But also, notice in this passage, following Jesus has nothing to do with what country you live in. Following Jesus is not tied to a state or a country. It is tied to Jesus. That's why it's called Christianity. Mark Dever says it this way, Jesus' approval of paying taxes to Rome was revolutionary. By this, Jesus shows us that the legitimacy of a government is not determined by whether it supports the worship of the one true God or even allows for it. Jesus is not requiring those who follow him to support states as their alliance or identity. He unhitches his followers from any particular nation. But now, quickly, number five. This text proves that the state is not God. Christians recognize that though we give the state what God has allocated as theirs, God is the sovereign one overall. Let me put it this way. Yes, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, but never render to Caesar what is not Caesar's. You see? There are many things that do not belong to Caesar, like your worship, your obeisance, or your soul which is why, number six, we owe our ultimate allegiance to God. Remember when Jesus held up the coin and said, whose likeness is this? The Bible, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but the most common translation of the Old Testament in Jesus' day was written in Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man after our image. And the same Greek word used in Genesis 1.26 is used here in this passage, which means this. Whose image is on the coin? Caesar's. But whose image are we made in? God's. So what do we give government? Sure, the taxes they're due. But what do we give God? Our very being, our soul. The state is not God. And we do not owe our ultimate allegiance to the state. We owe our ultimate allegiance to God. And we should know that when those conflict, and they will more and more, most likely, we follow the biblical pattern of obeying God above men. Like the midwives in Exodus who refused to murder the babies that Pharaoh wanted murdered. 
Or like Joseph and Mary, who God told, take Jesus and leave the country, disobey the government, don't let Herod kill him. Or like Peter in Acts 5, who when the government said, you can't meet and you can't share the gospel, Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So these are good answers to evil questions. And now our second question. And this question is about marriage. Look in verse 23. The same day Sadducees came to him. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection. And that detail is here for you so that you know that their question is insincere. And they asked him a question, not learning to, hoping to learn, but hoping to trip up Jesus. You might be thinking, why didn't they believe in the resurrection? It's because the Sadducees were a lot like Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> they cut out the pieces of the Bible they don't like, especially things that were supernatural. So the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death. That's what it means by no resurrection. And they also did not believe in angels. And they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Now, the question that they're about to ask is meant to be outlandish and comical. We're going to read it, and it sounds absurd. It's supposed to sound absurd. But it's based on something in the Old Testament I don't want you to be confused about. In the Old Testament, there was a law called leveret marriage, and here's essentially what it meant. If your brother died and left his widow and had no children, and you are his younger brother and you had never married... You could, and were encouraged to, if willing, marry your brother's widow and continue the family line. Now, that practice was very rarely followed. And in Jesus' day, it appears that most everyone declined. But the Sadducees used this specific scenario to try to make fun of the idea that anyone would live after death. Let's look at their question here in verse 24. The Sadducees said, Teacher, Moses said, the one that they do accept, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. They're overstating the case. Verse 25, now there were seven brothers among us. You see, they're being absurd on purpose. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh, which which of course would not happen. Verse 27, after them all, the woman died. And in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. So here's this outlandish scenario. What will Jesus do here? Look at verse 29. I love verses like this. Jesus answered them, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. How's that for a reply? (laughs) You're wrong, because you don't know the Bible, and you don't know God's power. You have no idea what you're talking about. Sometimes on TV, I'll see someone give an advertisement for their church or their ministry, and often in the public-facing advertisements, we'll hear something about the, the gentleness of our Lord, which is a good and right thing. But I've heard many people say, you know, Jesus never offended anyone. And I always think, well, you've never actually read the Bible. So Jesus says, you're wrong, and you don't know the Bible, and you don't know the power of God. Now that description, by the way, don't you love that Jesus puts those together? And don't we tend to separate them? Oh, I'm a guy that just knows the Bible. Or I'm a guy that just loves the power of God. But if you know the Lord, you know both. (laughs) You know the Word, and you know the God of the Word. So here is the actual description of how Scripture is intended to work. But now verse 30, Jesus gives an answer. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Let me pause to say this. 
This question is a very sensitive, personal question. My wife is by far my best friend in this world. And on a number of occasions that I remember, we were in bed, ready to fall asleep, and Steph would look at me and say, but we're not going to be married in heaven, right? So we're not going to get to enjoy each other like that, like we do now, right? In fact, this passage, though they gave an extreme example, might be very personal to you because you may have lost your spouse. And perhaps you've even remarried. And so this question feels very, very real to you. When I die and go to heaven, what is it going to be like? How will I relate with that other person? What does all this mean? And I am going to try to answer that for you. So let's look at Jesus' answer carefully. Verse 31, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? Now, here's what I want you to notice that Jesus has done so far. Notice verse 30. He just begins with, for in the resurrection. I love that. Remember, they said, we don't believe there is a resurrection. He begins, well, in the resurrection. (laughs) So, yeah, that thing you deny, it's happening. And when that thing happens, people don't marry and they're not given in marriage. What, what, What does he mean? He means this simply. The Sadducees assume that life after death would have to work exactly like life in this life. Jesus immediately destroys that assumption. Life after death is not an exact counterpart to this life, and here's one way it's not. We live in heaven because of the new birth, not because of childbirth, you see? From that one simple angle, he points out that their understanding was flawed. He's not intending here to give a full picture of how spouses and families will relate to each other in eternity. He's simply pointing out that their assumption that it'll work just like earth is wrong. You see? Now what he does is even more brilliant in verse 32. Was this not said to you by God, verse 32, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. I have to show you how brilliant Jesus' answer is. Remember, do you remember what books the Sadducees accept as the Bible? Just the first five. Daniel and Isaiah explicitly talk about resurrection, but they refuse those ones. So what does Jesus do? He quotes Exodus. This is when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush. And at that point, Abraham and Jacob and Isaac were long dead, and yet God describes them as still belonging to him presently. See, God describes those who are his not as past, but as present, because he is the God of the living. What encouragement it is to know that when we are gods, we are gods forever, not just temporarily. That we can say, I am his and he is mine for the rest of our lives. This morning, through this text, Jesus reminds the Sadducees, they really don't know the scripture, not even the ones they accept. Verse 33, and when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Now let me come back and answer the question I laid out there. How should a husband and wife think about this? How should we all think about this? If you have my notes from online, here are the big applications from this section of the Bible. First, we should know both God's word and God's power. Let us know both God's word and God's power. But now let me say some things about marriage in heaven. Number two, heaven has only one marriage, and it's Jesus and his bride. But let me explain what this means for us. If you're unmarried today, I want to remind you that your marital status now 
is not the key, but your marital status then. Are you married to the bridegroom? Do you have Jesus? That's the most defining reality, not whether or not you find yourself in a marriage on earth. Now, if you are married today, I do want to encourage you in the words of Ecclesiastes 9, enjoy your wife, enjoy your spouse. Marriage is a breathtaking gift, and marriage should be a wonderful gift that causes you to trace the beam up to the giver. But one helpful way to remember to trace the beam up to the giver and not invert the giver and the gift is to remember that when we get married, we vow, till death do us part which means that marriage does not put an anchor down in marriage, but marriage puts an anchor down in eternity. And eternity is the thing that pulls and shapes our marriage to what it ought to be. But if we put the anchor in the wrong place, we'll sink the boat. Because our marriage cannot bear the weight of all our hopes and dreams. Only our marriage to Christ. But also, let me say this, if your current marriage is miserable... Realize that God uses even broken marriages to shape us for the heavenly marriage. Think of Ephesians 5, where Jesus promised that he would present his church without spot or wrinkle. So if you think, well, my marriage here is a failure, it's struggling, but God won't even waste that. Even that he'll use for heavenward significance. But if your marriage here is wonderful, do not be sad because of number three. Heaven is better than our greatest earthly joys. This year, I found in my own family to be true, something C.S. Lewis once illustrated. My children here in, in Raleigh, we finally got enough rain that we had big puddles, and it was all I could do to keep my kids out of the puddles, just trying to pull them out. They're jumping in every puddle we had. But I remember the day that I told them that we were going to go to the ocean, to the beach. Now, they've never been to the ocean. They've never been to the beach. And so they just wanted to stay and play in the puddles. (laughs) So it's difficult to convince them, no, there's this great, great thing that you're really going to love. Get out of the puddles. Get in the car. Let's go. When we finally got there, a moment that I hope I never forget was when we were standing on the sand and Levi, one of my younger sons, my middle son, was on the sand and he looked and this tidal wave came in that was taller than Levi. And Levi already has big eyes, but they were big as saucers. He was amazed. This is incredible. This is way better than the puddle. Listen this morning. You can be confident on the basis of God's word. First Corinthians 2 verse 9. As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, God has prepared for those who love him. What God has prepared for you and I in glory is better than anything we've ever enjoyed on earth. You can be confident you will lose nothing but gain everything. We move from puddles to the ocean. But I also want to say this, and now I want to answer the question most directly that my wife has asked me many times. Yes, heaven will have only one marriage. That's true. Jesus and his bride. And yet, that one marriage will somehow make every one of our marriages better. All right, let me be very candid with you. For the last year, I have struggled so much more than I thought I was going to with deep emotional pain. And here's where it's caused from. When I packed the truck and moved from Michigan to North Carolina, I did not properly estimate how difficult it is to say goodbye to hundreds of people 
that you've sat with in the hospital, that you've sat with at the graveside, that you've been there in the delivery room, that you've sat with on the football bleachers, that you've played games in your living room, that you've known and loved, that you know their fears, their concerns, their joys, their parents, their children, their grandchildren, to know all those people that deeply was much more painful than I thought it was going to be. And so for months, and this is very, I'm being very raw with you, for months when I would drive in in the morning to Emmanuel, I would ask God out loud in prayer, Lord, help me to quit hurting so that I can love them the way you want me to love them. And I had this false assumption that if I could just somehow cut my love for those people lower, then I could love you better. And I'm such a slow learner, and God is so patient, that one morning I was in First Thessalonians 2. And Paul's writing to a church that he's not with anymore. And he says, I wish I could be with you. I used to be your pastor. I loved being your pastor, but I'm not your pastor anymore. But then what Paul said changed my life. Here's what he said in verse 19 of 1 Thessalonians 2. What is our hope or joy or crown or boasting before our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? Is it not you? You are our joy and glory. Here's what Paul is saying. He will always be the church of Thessalonians pastor. And when he stands before the Lord, they will still know him as their pastor, and he will still know them as his flock, and they will still recognize each other in the same roles. That means every pastor that God has blessed Emmanuel with, like Pastor Steve, a wonderful pastor, you will always know as your pastor in eternity. That means that every person God's allowed me to pastor I will always know as someone who I've been allowed to pastor in eternity. And you know what that means for marriage? It means if a pastor and his flock will still know each other in that role forever, surely a husband and a wife will always know each other in that role forever. Now, right now, you might be concerned. But what about all the mean things I said to that pastor? What about the bad things I said to that spouse? What about the marriage that didn't work out? But don't forget, in heaven, he will wipe every tear from our eye and correct every wrong affection we have. See, 1 Thessalonians doesn't end in chapter 2. It goes on in chapter 4 to say that when the trumpet sounds and Christ meets us in the air, it says, there will we all together be with the Lord and know each other as such. That's why Gavin Ortland writes on this text, I have every reason to believe in heaven I will be closer to my wife and kids and grandkids than ever. It won't be the end of our relationship but they'll be taken to a new level. Our source of comfort is not only that we will be with the Lord, but that we'll be and know one another. So rejoice in these words. Now the third question, also given from evil intent, but also with a good answer. And this one is in verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he'd silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. You can picture kids on the playground. The first team tried, they lost. The second team tried, they lost. They went back to the huddle. How are we going to get them now? Verse 35, and one of them, a lawyer, and that's sort of a bad anachronism in English. It means an expert in the law, an expert in the Old Testament. Asked him a question to test him. Verse 36, which is the greatest commandment of the law? You sort of get the feeling here that this is like an ordination council where the candidate's doing so well that now even the learned ministers start asking questions they don't know the answers to. Let's see if he knows this one too. See, the Jews debated commonly which commandments are the more important ones. It was a huge debate. 
So verse 37, he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. These are overlapping categories. They mean love God from the fullness of you, your whole person. Verse 38, this is the great and first commandment. Verse 39, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, on these two commandments... Depend all the law and the prophets, and I've counted 630-ish commandments in the law and the prophets. So how can they all hang on these two? Because these two are the wellspring that flows the current of life through all the others. So what should we learn from this interchange? Well, here's a couple applications for us. Number one, we should never separate loving God from loving people. So some people are like, well, you know what? I just love people. I love people. I love being around people. I love making people happy. But if they want to stray from God, I don't want to correct them because I just love people. Well, then you don't love God. Yeah, you don't love people either. And other people are like, well, I just love God. I love reading the Bible. I love thinking about God. I walk in the woods and I talk to God, but I can't stand people. Well, then you don't love God. And you don't love people. Did you catch, how many commandments did they ask him to pick? One. How many did he give them? Two. Because you can't just have the one. They're inseparable. We must never separate loving God from loving people. Number two, we should never reverse the sequence. He called the first one first. And then, just so we didn't miss it, he called it the greatest. We love God first. We love people second. You will never love people correctly unless you love God supremely. Number three, we should not worry about loving ourselves more. Jesus never commands us to love ourselves because it's assumed. That's why he says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Do you know in the area of loving ourselves, we all already have an A+. Plus. <laughs> Even if someone said, oh, pastor, you're wrong. I hate myself. And I don't mean this to be mean. I'm just trying to tell you honestly from the Bible. You cannot hate yourself unless you're self-obsessed. We already are geared towards thinking about ourselves. We don't need any commandments there. Love God and love neighbor. Now that's part one. And it's the longer part. Part two is the shorter part. After three evil questions, we get three good answers. But now Jesus gives just one question, but gets no answer. Look in verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. It's my turn now. Saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. There's a lot of technical stuff going on. I just want to make it simple. This is Tuesday in the temple of the Passion Week. Jesus has beautifully rebuffed all of their insincere questions. Now he asks them one, whose son is the Messiah, the Christ? And any reader of the Old Testament would know, well, surely he's the son of David. David was promised a kingly descendant or son who would have a Throne that would never end, who would have a scepter that would rule in righteousness. So yes, that's correct. The Messiah is the son of David. But if he's the son of David, then verse 43 says, then why would David, notice in the spirit, because whatever is written is from God, call him Lord? 
By the way, he's affirming the superscription of the psalm as accurate as well. So David's the writer of this psalm, and here's what David said. David said, the Lord said to my Lord. So here's the key question. Then why would David call his own son his own Lord? Normally you think of a son as beneath or inferior, but why does David think of his descendant as superior? Verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now Psalm 110 the one that Jesus is quoting, says that the first Lord is talking to the second Lord. And that second Lord will make all of his enemies a footstool and will shatter kings and he will execute judgment. He's a universal king and a perfect priest. But notice verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You see, the question is, if if the Messiah... If Jesus isn't really David's son, then whose son is he? Has not God already said twice in the book of Matthew? Remember the transfiguration when God said out loud, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You see, Jesus' point is, yes, the Messiah is the descendant of David, but David himself knew the Messiah is superior to David because the Messiah is God's son. God the Father said to God the Son, I will put everything in your care. Here's what this final interchange teaches us. The most important question to answer correctly is not about us or our lives, but about God and His Son. The most important question to answer correctly is, who is Jesus? And the answer he gives here clearly is that Jesus is the Lord the Christ, the King of Kings. You see, the three questions they ask, even from their insincere motive, tell us what they're really concerned about. We're concerned about politics and human government. But if they knew Jesus, they would know that the kingdoms of this world will be the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ forever. Secondly, they're really concerned about, well, I don't know what happens after death. Let's debate it. But if you know Jesus, you know what happens after death, and you know that he's there, and that's enough. Their third question, well, which commandment's the most important? But if you know the Lord, you know the most important is love. Anyone who knows God loves God, we read in 1 John 4. And anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Verse 10 of 1 John 4, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. They ask him three evil questions. He gives them three good answers. They now are supposed to answer just one question from him, but they fail. But what will he do for them? What will he do for us? He will go to the cross willingly. He will suffer the sin of rebellion committed by us, committed by them. He will remove it out of the way. He will conquer sin and death and rise victoriously because this is the Lord of whom the Lord said he will make his enemies his footstool. Jesus is that king. But David wrote about him that he was David's Lord.
Is he yours? Can you say of the Lord, I know the Lord. I know the Lord Jesus. I pray you can this morning. And if you can, then conflict in government, concern over what the eternal future is going to look like, and discussion over what ethics should guide us, they all smooth out (laughs) because you know Jesus. This morning, you should be able to answer the one most important question. Do you know the Lord? Let's go to Him in prayer this morning. God, I thank You, Lord, that our Heavenly Father, God, has sent His eternal Son, God the Son, the promised Messiah, to enter into this world, to take on human flesh, to interact with questions from evil people, and yet to even pray, Father, forgive even them. And Lord, I thank you that our Lord Jesus bore his sin, bore our sin in his sinless body. I thank you, Lord, that he conquered sin and death and rose from the cross. And I pray that every one of us in this room would be able to answer, yes, I know the Lord Jesus. And we know him not because of a meritorious work of our own. We know him through faith in the meritorious work that he has wrought. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus has conquered everything. He's lived perfectly, died substitutionarily, and risen victoriously. May we, through faith in him, find that we now know all there is to know, all that's needed. And armed with that knowledge, Lord, may we live as good citizens in a passing world, but citizens who are not captive to our human government, but free because we know we have a heavenly kingdom and free because we know that our ultimate king does not live in a temple made by human hands. Lord, also because we know Jesus, may we know that the relationships we have on earth matter, and they matter into eternity, and yet you'll make them right one day because there's a lot we got wrong. Lord, I pray that we'd enjoy the gifts of marriage and family better because we know their source and we know their future. Lord, I also pray that when we think about commandments and ethics, and there's so many questions in our culture, what do we do here? What do we do there? What's the right decision there? Lord, may we remember that His law is love. And the law is to love the Lord our God with all our being and to love our neighbor. May we keep those joined, and may we keep them prioritized properly but they only can if we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So may we know the right answer to the most important question. May we know Jesus as our Lord. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.